It's always good to be at Truett Seminary. It's always good to be here talking about things Baptist. Deeply grateful to Dr. Garland for the invitation. And I just wanted to set some context for you in terms of my age. I was his student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, the word dissent is sometimes a bad word. People are uncomfortable with it. It has a negative connotation. It hasn't always been that way. Early Baptists were not afraid of dissent. They saw how establishments or those who insisted on conformity were willing to deny conscience in the name of external purity and theological uniformity. Roger Williams, early religious liberty advocate, described it like this. People in power are seldom willing to hear any other music but what is known to please them. For Williams and other early Baptists, dissent was not only necessary, it was an act of freedom. It was an act of voluntary discipleship. In Acts 4, which we just heard, Peter and John practiced dissent against a conformist establishment. They speak of what they have seen and what they have heard and what they have experienced in Christ as an act of freedom, as an act of voluntary discipleship. An act of freedom. You sit in these pews today at Truett Seminary because some visionary leaders were willing to dissent as a free act of faith against a tidal wave of encroaching theological conformity. Let me tell you the story. The remake of the Southern Baptist Convention called the conservative resurgence by some who liked it, called a fundamentalist takeover by those who opposed it, had roots dating back several decades. But officially it began in 1979 a political strategy to elect a series of presidents who affirmed biblical inerrancy was devised by two Texans, Paige Patterson, who used to live in Dallas, and Judge Paul Pressler of Houston. The design was like this. Presidents would use their appointive powers to place like-minded men, Mary Alice, not women, like-minded men in positions of leadership with the goal of purifying the SBC agencies in seminaries of liberalism, as Patterson and Pressler defined that term. Opponents, like me, usually called moderate, said the Patterson-Pressler movement was in reality a disenfranchisement, an exclusion of persons not willing to abide by a my way or no way creed of narrow doctrinal and social positions. Presidential elections were hotly contested. It's a fascinating story. But suffice it to say, by 1990, the takeover of the convention, the resurgence of a particular kind of theology had been accomplished. The new victorious leaders proclaimed a new reformation. And biblical fidelity had returned to Southern Baptists. Southern Baptists actually responded to this conflict in a variety of ways. I'd just like to cite a few. A whole lot of people, the majority, hailed the new reformation. I assume they still do. Some opposed. 
Some opposed so much that they left Baptist life. They said Baptist life left them. There are actually several ex-Baptists in Episcopalian and Methodist pews today. Some, however, stayed Baptists, and they are a variety of what I call Baptist loyalism. I'll break that down into several categories. A little artificial here, but stay with me. First, some didn't know what was going on in the SBC, and they never found out. The denominational offerings kept going to the same places, and if the ministries had changed, they said they didn't know about that. You know the old saying, ignorance is bliss, and I think in a lot of cases, religious ignorance is even more blissful. Uh, the second category is a larger category. Baptist loyalists who, like my mother, desired to stay Southern Baptist. Even if they didn't like the new direction of the SBC, these folks had very deep roots in the convention. Their love for its ministries and its heritage was deep, intense, and authentic. They especially loved foreign missions and icons like Lottie Moon, home missionary icons like Annie Armstrong. All of this made them hesitant to speak out. They might speak privately, but publicly they decided to go along. I have a variety of things going on here. Some simply was like my mother and couldn't envision anything other than supporting Lottie Moon. Others thought that if they spoke out, they would lose their jobs. Perhaps a legitimate concern in some cases. All of them in this category probably in some form or fashion went by this motto. Avoid politics. Support missions. The denominational pendulum will never swing too far. It never has. Ultimately, everything will be fine. Of course, the pendulum didn't do that. Third category. Some Baptists put a fascinating variation on this hesitancy to speak. They had seen and they had heard, but they simply made an attempt to deny, an authentic attempt perhaps, an authentic attempt to deny that this would really have any impact on them, on their church or on their Baptist identity. About a decade ago, I wrote a history of Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a wonderful church, a historic church with a rich history. The church tried its very best to stay out of denominational politics. One state convention leader, Dr. Garland made reference to this, one state convention leader who was a church member said it like this. I don't let nobody blow smoke on my blue skies. He was going to support the convention like he always had. He didn't care if other people told him the skies were blue. He insisted that they were blue. They were not dark. They were not cloudy. They had to be blue. Now, that church actually stayed out of denominational politics along that skyline until 1995. One of its former pastors happened to be fired as president of the school up in Fort Worth. At that point in time, it became a personal attack, and the skies were no longer blue for them. I'm not sure I can argue with you. I'll have to talk to my colleagues later. I'm not sure I can argue that only people who recognized that they were directly affected spoke out against the Patterson Pressure Movement. Or can I? 
This morning, I at least want to say to you that those who directly experience something, whether it be fundamentalism or, more importantly, whether it be an experience of grace or forgiveness, they do seem compelled to testify of what they have seen and heard. Which leads me to a fourth category and final one. It's the one I want to focus on with you today. It's pretty blunt. Depending on your perspective, it's pretty forceful. So his perspective said, if you think the skies are blue, then you have your head buried in the ground. I got a dissent. I must speak of what I have seen and what I have heard. And in a paradoxical way, I am compelled by freedom to testify about my experience and warn you about those that want to stifle that freedom I have in Jesus Christ. That was the approach of a few. It was the approach of President Herbert Reynolds, president of Baylor University from 1981 to 1995, and the visionary creator of G.W. Truett Theological Seminary. To understand Reynolds' vision, I need to take you back to 1979. This is the part of the story that's just really, really fascinating for me. I'm from the East Coast, just come to Texas in 03, and so don't really know the Texas story all that well. I know the story in Georgia extremely well, uh, in a very personal way, but according to Reynolds and the story that comes out of Texas, Judge Paul Pressler from a church in Houston decides that the SBC has to change after his experience of Baylor University. There were some students that he had in a Bible study in his church at Houston. They come off to Baylor to be freshmen. And they go back and they say, we're learning some things in our classes and we don't understand what's going on. And Pressler hears about it and he gets irate. Pressler says that Old Testament required classes for freshmen at Baylor out of the Department of Religion, of which I teach now, was harming the spirituality of young people. And I'll focus on a book by Jack Flanders. Shortly, or temporarily, the chair of the Religion Department. He had co-authored a book, Dr. Reed, you better be careful, People of the Covenant, an introduction to the Old Testament. And in that book, Pressler said, Baylor is not affirming biblical inerrancy. It has adopted harmful historical critical methodology. For example, it is arguing that the book of Daniel was a post-exilic writing. If you want more details, just whatever you get taught next semester, you'll y'all do some of that stuff, right? It wasn't just Pressler. Pressler was complaining about Baylor. It was also a pretty prominent pastor in Texas named James or Jimmy Draper from Euless, Texas. He was a member of Baylor's governing board in 79. He goes to fellow colleagues on the governing board and says, what's going on in the religion department about this book? In the fall of 1979, just after the first president of inerrancy had been elected to the SBC, a 16-page critique of the Flanders book begins to be circulated in Texas, among Texas Baptists, all with the obvious goal of effecting some changes in Dr. Hardage's BGCT. 
Flanders takes the thing hard. Verbal beatings and his personality didn't go well. What looked like was playing out at Baylor was the same thing that had begun to happen at the six SBC seminaries. President Reynolds responded, and he responded quickly and strongly. He said, I support my faculty, I support my school. He was theologically conservative, but he was not interested in narrow theological parameters, narrow theological attacks. He was not interested in galloping creedalism at Baylor. He staunchly defended more and more and more, as you go along, academic freedom. And he personally defended Flanders, who had been his pastor at First Baptist Church of Waco. Think about this. When conflict is that direct and that personal, it's hard to find the skies very blue. As the conflict unfolded across the whole Southern Baptist world, Baptist classrooms were occasionally the target of fundamentalist tactics. Religion professors were going to be guilty until proven innocent. A few students across the SBC tried to tape lectures and find damning evidence of liberalism. Starts going on in 1980. I could tell you a story another day of how it happened to me in 1986. Reynolds' response, he aggressively condemned monitoring of Baylor faculty. He promised to expel students caught doing surveillance in class. He was very clear. He thought the goal was to harass faculty, to get them to leave the school, or to get them to acquiesce to fundamentalist dominance. In preparation for today, I did a survey of some articles in Baptist Press, Baptist News Agency. There are several articles about... President Reynolds, in those articles, he is consistent. He is loud, he is strong, and he is pointed, and he is blunt about what he had seen and what he had heard. Articles from 1984 all the way up to the mid-90s trumpet the very same themes. He said the skies are not blue, they are dark, and we must dissent to preserve our freedom. Like most moderates during this conflict, Reynolds called his opponents one word, or maybe more. I called them fundamentalists. The reason he did that is because he said they were pushing a my way or no way, narrow, intolerant, conformist attitude. He firmly believed, and he said this more than once, that there was an oligarchy of leaders trying to take things over. A hierarchy of a few inerrant interpreters of an inerrant Bible that would take over SBC institutions and when they finished that, they would come take over Baylor and they would impose their external uniformity. The rule is very clear. Fundamentalists had forsaken historic Baptist identities. Several things here. They had forsaken it regarding the priesthood of all believers, the priesthood of each believer, or as a lot of Baptists called that, soul competency, the ability to have a direct relationship with God, to read the scriptures. Reynolds often had a point that I found in my own study that you have to allow for a free conscience because of the last judgment. At the last judgment, it will be you and God. Freedom, therefore, might be messy, but it's necessary. Reynolds, of course, affirmed the importance of the church. He was not 
a Lone Ranger Christian. He was very active in First Baptist Church of Waco and he loved the church so much that he was concerned about this oligarchy and thought congregational polity was being threatened. But what's fascinating about him, he was a trained psychologist, he was a professor, and he worried about fundamentalism as a mass movement. To read the article, it's, it's, it's fascinating and it's harsh. In the article, he says that I'm worried about communities with a herd mentality. A herd mentality where people simply go along with a leader, never willing to question the infallible interpreter, and where seminary students are so pressured to get prize pulpits that they go along with those in charge. Reynolds said, look, folks, Baptists and Baylor believe in the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. But an heiress he took away from freedom didn't preserve it. He said Baylor was committed to following Christ, this is his line, as the plumb line of faith. And he adamantly concluded that Baylor would perpetuate these historic Baptist identity markers. And here's a quote. Whether there were any conventions in existence outside these institutional walls or not. Reynolds' concern about fundamental left a legacy of two events. You can decide whether they're both controversial. The first legacy was the charter change of Baylor University. In the fall of 1990, months, days, after the convention of Southern Baptists in New Orleans, when all moderates said, we have lost, he begins to affect a change in how Baptists related to the BGCT, or how Baylor did. It was very controversial. I can't tell the story in detail. In short, he would say the BGCT would only select 25% of Baylor's leaders, governing board, now called regents, and that the school would select 75% of those in a self-perpetuating fashion. This ruffled many a Texas Baptist feather. The move to a self-perpetuating board bothered even some of Reynolds' strongest supporters, and still does. What's important to the story of Truett's origins, however, is why he said he did it. He said he had to make the charter change because he would not allow what was going on in the SBC to happen to his community, Baylor University. When he had left New Orleans in June of 1990, he said, I will not go back to another annual convention. He had had enough. Reynolds would defy. He had seen and he had heard and he would speak and he would do. He would defy. He had been told that fundamentalist leaders had said, we're going for Texas and then we're going for Baylor. And Reynolds said, no, you're not. Again, it was controversial, but what I want you to focus on is what he said, why did it? He said Baylor would remain a place for academic freedom and the freedom embodied in Baptist identity markers. And to guarantee those commitments today and forever, Baylor had to be free from fundamentalist firing lines. That's legacy number one. Legacy number two is connected 
Again, you can decide whether both are controversial. Legacy number two is fascinating, and it's the origins of this school. At the very same time as the charter change, the wheels were in motion to start this seminary. In July of 1990, and notice, Reynolds will tell you later that there are two years of planning going into this, but in July 1990, one month after the meeting of the convention in New Orleans, Reynolds has the name G.W. Truett Theological Seminary Reserve of the Secretary of State in Texas. The move was reported in the press with one of my all-time favorite Baptist history headlines. Baptist president bans dancing on campus and considers new Truett Seminary. <laughs> I guess Reynolds won one and lost one. Y'all do dance over here. Emily, don't y'all In the PR about the seminary, Reynolds said, look, we've not committed to starting the school. We would continue to watch SB seminary, SBC seminaries to see if they continue to decline and drift away from historic Baptist principles and freedom. If so, Reynolds said, we are prepared to move. We're prepared to dissent on what we've seen and heard. Why name a school after Truett? It makes sense, the most famous Texas Baptist statesman of all time, the most famous Baptist preacher from Texas of all time. You're a close second. But <laughs> this is what he said. He said, I'm naming this school after Truett because Truett believed in freedom and religious liberty for all. The very next year, 1991, Truett Seminary was incorporated. A 15-member advisory board was created and they helped to craft a vision for a new seminary. The next year, January of 92, Baylor's governing board approved an opening date for a seminary for the year 1994. Still no commitment, but things were rolling along. And along the way, each time, Reynolds were very clear to Baptist Press, let me tell you why I'm doing this. I don't like the direction of the existing Baptist seminaries because of fundamentalist power plays. We need theological education in an atmosphere of freedom. Without a doubt, the founding of Truett Seminary was clearly to provide an alternative to fundamentalism. There's no way around that. But Reynolds articulated a positive vision, he and his early supporters. I'm going to break this down artificially into three or four numbers for you. First, he looked out at his supporters and he says, let's think about what we can do if we focus on freedom and open inquiry in a university setting. Because in a university setting, it's easier to have academic freedom than in a seminary reliant on a denominational machinery. Second, Reynolds, another early advocate, said that Truett's identity should be clearly Baptist and evangelical. Freedom doesn't lead just anywhere. If it's connected to the scriptures, Reynolds thought it would be Baptist and evangelical. At one early planning meeting, when a document circulated identifying Truett as evangelical, the word Baptist happened to be missing in the document. And immediately... An insistence was made 
that the word Baptist be there. Uh, to nobody's surprise then, the school's vision was to embody historic Baptist principles on the freedom of individual conscience, priesthood of believers, and congregational church polity. Three, this original vision highlighted the training of pastors and other ministers for the state of Texas. It was to be an alternative. The school was clearly to be a seminary for ministry, not simply a divinity school. True, it would have a strong mentoring program, which you have. And there was some conflict about how to do that, but the mentoring program clearly was connected to the local church. There's that focus on the local church again. It's the freedom for individual expression, but an extremely strong commitment to the church. The two can coexist, and they did for Reynolds. The church, however, was not just a local church. Some Baptists have been prone to say that. Rather, the church had an international outlook. Baylor's motto, pro ecclesia, pro Texana. I cannot say that the shift of pro Texas to pro world starts with the creation of the seminary. I can say this, it began down a highway with a very fast speed. The creation of the seminary begins to articulate very strongly that the church that we serve is worldwide. We might expect some Baptists were complaining about this proposed vision and the need for a new seminary. Uh, if you look back at this, and again, know who I am, if you look back at this, I just kind of smile and go, how could you complain? The seminary down the road in Fort Worth said, we don't need a new seminary. I mean, we're doing all this stuff fine. We're in the mainstream of Baptist life. Well, within one year, they had fired their president and locked his doors. But at the time, they said, we don't need another. Well, I understand that. I mean, who wants a competitor? Significantly, then, Baylor said, we're not your competitor. And some folks probably saw it as a competitor, okay? Daniel Vestal, pastor in Houston, getting ready to retire CBF coordinator this year. He was chair of that Truett Advisory Board of 15 members, and he said publicly, we are not simply a new Southwestern. Let me tell you what we are. And I want you to notice the importance of what he's getting ready to say. Because it reveals expanded details about the original Reynolds vision. Your character. Vestal said, because we are attached to a large university, we will more quickly and more efficiently be able to implement an inclusive identity. And what he outlined with that was this. Truett will be multiracial multi-ethnic, multicultural. That one's for you, Reverend Lucas. Interestingly, in those original documents, I'm a little disappointed to say I don't see the word women. Oral tradition, however, says from the very beginning of the Reynolds vision, support for women in ministry was there. There seems to be evidence for that. One of the two founding faculty members of this institution was Ruth Ann Foster. When she sadly died back in 2006, she was hailed by colleagues and students during her time as a pastor to students and a pioneer and leader of Truett's women in ministry efforts. Only in an atmosphere of freedom and Baptist life 
would women ministers fully be affirmed. And I am going to repeat one sentence in this address, and it's that one. This is for you, Mary Alice, only in an atmosphere of freedom in Baptist life would women ministers fully be affirmed. In 1993, Reynolds' choice to implement the Truett Vision as the school's first dean was Robert Sloan. He later succeeded Reynolds as president of Baylor. Sloan at the time was a professor. I said a little bit of irony here. He was a professor in the Department of Religion. He was known to Texas Baptists, well-known as a popular preacher, popular interim pastor, and top-notch evangelical scholar. In tapping Sloan, Reynolds hoped to gather support from Texas Baptists across the theological spectrum who wanted an alternative to fundamentalism. What I found fascinating in Reynolds' remarks about Sloan was this. He highlighted that Sloan would be a G.W. Truett, someone committed to religious liberty for all. In the fall of 1994, Truett Seminary opened its doors with 51 students in the B.H. Carroll Educational Building of First Baptist Church of Waco. The irony was rich. Carroll had helped start a seminary at Baylor in the early 1900s, the school that eventually moved to Fort Worth. Financial support for this school in the early years is another story. It came from various places like the Piper Foundation. Scholarship support has come from the BGCT and from the CBF. However, the major and indispensable donor were, or was John Ball and his wife, Eula May. They, like Reynolds, had a passionate dislike for fundamentalism. He felt like he had to act on what he had seen and what he had heard, and he did it with a blunt flair. He believed the creation of Truett was necessary because it was a battle for Baptist integrity and freedom. I asked for Acts 4 to be read this morning, alluded to it all throughout this address. In reflecting on Acts 4 and the founding of this school, I could say that fundamentalists, conservatives, had no hesitation to speak about what they believed, they had seen and heard. Point taken. Point taken. But, and as I tell my freshman 18-year-olds, the word but redirects what I'm getting ready to say. But for Baptists in their 400-year story, Acts 4 not only addresses the need to speak and hear about our personal experiences of faith in Christ, it addresses the need to do so as an act of freedom and an act of voluntary discipleship. The apostles Peter and Paul were arrested for preaching and then they were commanded to stop speaking or teaching in the name of Jesus. If they had shut up and conformed as commanded, they would have been spiritually bound to a law which hindered their worship of God. If they had been locked up, they would have been set free in their spirit despite their outward change. Their freedom to speak was rooted in the freedom they received from God. It was an act of freedom. They could only speak of what they had seen and heard and experienced. Yes, it is a paradox. They were compelled to speak freely. 
Acts 4 speaks to the need for all of us to speak freely, to not see the word to sin as a bad word all the time, but to sin as an act of voluntary discipleship when you find prevailing winds from an establishment which demands external conformity and defines it as orthodoxy. The establishment in Acts 4 wanted the disciples to be silent, to act as if the skies were blue when they knew they weren't. Peter and John couldn't do that. Original identity markers sometimes change. Sometimes they get abandoned, sometimes they get adapted. Part two of the truest story would deal with those kind of issues. And by the way, I'm very proud of this school. But I do want to close by saying that over and over and over again, Herbert Reynolds said that the original quest for a seminary was to embody what G.W. Truett stood for, freedom. Religious freedom for all. May the faculty at Truett, whom are kind enough to let me come over here once every fall, May they remain committed to speaking and hearing and doing in an atmosphere of freedom. Then and only then, then and only then, will the dark clouds of pressured conformity be derailed and blue skies will really be blue. Amen.